In this episode of Seicho Podcast, we talk to the founder of Eucalyptus, ex-head of marketing for Koala on everything e-commerce related, from media buying for the Australian Labour Party to underinvestment in creative. We honestly still have so many questions to ask, but we did get interrupted by a fire drill. Otherwise, there easily would have been a one and a half hour episode. Nonetheless, big shout out to Tim Doyle for taking the time to hang out with us and it's time to jump right in. Enjoy. Welcome to the Seisho Podcast. Today we have a guest that's honestly really, really special to us. Um, not in a romantic way, but in an intellectual way. And he has, so before his management consulting career, actually after his management consulting career with Harris Partners, he went to do a bit of work with um, the Australian Labour Party. And then as Koala was getting set up, he moved to Koala. And of course, we all know him as the head of growth and strategy in the beginning, and then moved to head of marketing for Koala. Now he started his own company called Eucalyptus, and one of the biggest piece of that um, within the Eucalyptus portfolio is Pilot. So today we have Tim Doyle. Um, welcome, Tim. Thanks. <laughs> a little awkward. We'll work on the intro in the future, and I just dropped the mic. Um, <laughs> Not in a good way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as usual, we have Andrew and David, um, but we want to get started with the brief. Just a brief history about your background, because we know that you started management consulting from Harris Partners. Um, how did that? How did your career evolve? Because you know it was management consulting and then to marketing. Yeah, so I was in hospitality for a long time, and then moved to into consulting. Uh, the specific field of consulting we did, we did a lot of digital stuff, so a lot of like, transformational work for big retailers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as part of that, we started to see the like. I think when the Facebook Pixel started was probably like the big inflection point for performance media generally. 2014? I want to say 2014, but mm. I think like realistically, people started really kicking it in in probably 2015. Yeah. Um, so the timing was good. We saw that a lot of companies trying to deal with that. It kind of meant a, a point for data in marketing and a new way of kind of exploiting that. Mm. So uh, naturally we started doing it a lot. Then uh, the Labor Party project, which was actually part of Harris Partners, was my last project at Harris Partners. Yeah. yeah. Um, that represented that even more where you know a, a national organization was trying to figure out uh that landscape and doing that we saw so much well some incredible kind of outcomes in terms of a how facebook could be used to influence and b um just kind of the sheer power of the engine um and then danny who had worked with me at harris partners was starting koala with mitch taylor at the time um kind of seeing similar things happen um from an e-com perspective but also on facebook uh, after i was done with the alp uh, went and joined them and then it was a bit of a rocket ship nice um let's talk so back in 2014 2015 um what is alp 2016 yeah 2016 2016 that was a time when what like facebook was still affordable yeah like, cpm was like dirt cheap yeah yeah definitely it was definitely different i mean i, I wouldn't say it's unaffordable now but it was yeah, yeah. you know i think like I, I was actually looking a couple of weeks ago at a couple of the accounts that i mean and like looking at the impressions they were delivering in uh 2015 2016 yeah, and yeah. it's yeah, you're looking at, you know, sub $5 CPMs in some cases. I don't remember seeing that. <laughs> I, I actually do remember that. Yeah, so, it, yeah, it's, it's changed a lot. It's still not as anywhere near as expensive as um, as Google Ads, though. So yeah, exactly. That's one still you know, good thing. Yeah, mm. I think I think one of the biggest thing is um, people people forget to view these channels as just rent space. Like, mm. you know, you have to pay rent to be there. And, like, if it's not your own... Like something like email email you still have to pay for it we'll probably talk about that in in a, in a little bit um but 
instead of talking in ALP, what was that like, you know, buying ads for them? Like, did you, was that the normal kind of, I guess, process in terms of sequencing the videos and then like... No, it's completely different. Like, I think uh, the, the unique thing about a political campaign is you don't have a conversion event. Mm. So everything everything occurs in an environment where you really don't know. Like a um, vacuum almost. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a vacuum. And actually, like, it has, it has like, kind of, kind of, like, in, opposed incentives in some ways because... Uh, if you like say said the, the classic thing is to optimize for clicks or engagement in an environment like that it doesn't necessarily work in a political campaign because the stronger the the stronger the audience is as supporters of you yeah. um, the more likely they are to engage and to click so engagements actually negatively correlate in some ways with like being within your target audience so there is so much work to be done in excluding people that are uh, likely to be rusted on voters for the party yeah. and then there's rusted on voters for the other party which you also want to expo avoid because then you end up like this kind of like water contamination element where there's just like dirt in the comments yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so you're trying to find this middle ground all the time so I think like the biggest targeting lesson from an environment with no pixel kind of events is uh, how do you find people in the middle and so it's like a lot of how you bring data to Facebook not necessarily how you do use the data Facebook gives you well, so you were essentially like um, excluding these audiences. So the people who are not planning to vote for that party is more likely to engage than the people who are. Is that no? So I mean, you've got problems on both sides, right? So if you the classic example is you run a video where you talk about, say, like your health policy. Yeah, yeah. What happens is you've got two like polarized sides that you want to avoid. You want to avoid everyone that's going to cheerlead for labor in that environment and yeah. um, and just comment positively because it's essentially wasted spend. Yeah. Um, you want to avoid all of the uh, safe liberal voters because they will, um, A, un unlikely to have their perspective changed and B, are likely to comment negatively. Mm. Um, and so you're trying to constantly harvest for this this like undecided middle. Uh. Um, and there's a lot of ways you can come to that, but that's that's the constant challenge that's there. How did you... What, what was the success metric for that if you are unable to track any events on the pixel? Like, well, I think what you end up doing is you end up kind of, there's a couple of ways you do it. The first is that you, you look for kind of cost effectiveness of getting that reach. So like the, in an environment where you're spending a lot of money in a very short amount of time, you're going like, can I reach uh, these people with minimal bleed uh, as many times as possible? Um, and so, so that's frequency like... Frequency was a... Yeah, was absolutely. A yeah, yeah. You want, I mean, you want cost, you want CPMs and you want frequency. Uh, the second key thing you want to be doing is running some kind of like random control trial, t trial tests outside of the Facebook specific environment. Um, and so... What you're looking to do there is do like things like uh, polling on the phone for specific seats, oh. uh, asking in focus groups about anyone has anyone seen any digital content from either party, um, and then also you're kind of looking to cr like triangulate like okay how is this getting how what is the engagement looking like here when compared to other channels or other pieces of content and like you look literally reading through the content uh, the the comments and going like okay how do who do we feel is really seeing this and how are they engaging yeah um so there's a lot of different methods and then you kind of balancing both like let's call it like softer let's read through and get a feel for this with oh. like the harder what's coming out of the focus groups what's coming out of the uh, the calls mm. okay so i guess like transitioning from like the labor party to buying ads in koala would be like what in a way would that be easier with the pixel well i think it's just different right like there are so many lessons that are set that are the same like in terms of one of the things that i really learned at the labor party was like the power of like a, almost like a newsroom approach to content. So like they they have six weeks to run this election campaign and they're constantly in the news cycle, right? Like literally every bulletin, every 15 minutes on the ABC is mentioning something to do with the election. Yeah. And so 
what the challenge in a Labour Party environment is, is to get that content into your digital channels in front of the people that matter as quickly as possible. Mm. So it's a constant cut, paste, spend, cut, paste, spend mechanism. Koala's not that different to that, where it's like constant content production, constant testing, and then spend. Yeah. Um, and so like there's lessons that are the same, but then there are like lessons that you learn about e-commerce. And mm. I, I was lucky to have Danny there, who like was probably one of the first str- really strong e-com marketers in the country. And so he was able to kind of pass on a lot of like the infrastructure and structural lessons that form the basis of the way Koala does things. In one of your previous interviews, you talked a lot about deep ac- finding deep acquisition channels and spending enough time on it. Um, I think one of the biggest things that we're seeing so far is um, a lot of startups or company utilize the whole uh, bullseye framework to find your top three, top four channels that works yeah. for the business. Um, and I think we, we do see a lot of companies give up on those channels too soon. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in your interview, you specifically talked about, like, for example, Facebook and Instagram, uh, especially for consumer companies, they work, but you have to figure out how to make them work. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like, there's so much general kind of commentary on the state of Facebook advertising and the state of Instagram advertising. And, like, it's so broad that it almost is inapplicable in all cases to... Um, like the, there's so many instances where people like talk about rising CPMs on Facebook, right? And like, yeah, yeah. whoa, is Facebook rising CPMs? It'll never be the same. And it's probably not the same, but it's also not relevant until you're doing, you know, six figures of Facebook advertising a month mm. for CPMs to be making a meaningful difference to the success or failure of your business. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, my view is like, when you're starting out, Facebook is the best channel to be in because you get the best feedback loops, both in the sense of a transactional element and also mm. in terms of like feedback on what you're saying. So like, to spend the minimum, like I, I've said this before, and I think I said that in this, this in that other interview where I was like, I think all you've really achieved when you've spent your first ten hours on Facebook is to realize mm-hmm. how to be bad at Facebook. Yeah. Um. And so there is a minimum bar, and I think that's actually something that's changed. I think the barrier to entry is probably higher in terms of quality than it's ever been. Mm. So I think what you need to be doing is spending the time to get through and to that minimum bar, and then work out from there. Um, whether or not it's a de- necessarily a scalable channel mm-hmm. or whether it is just an important testing mechanism for your messaging. Yeah. It, it's, it, oh, no, no, you go. You I was going to say, because we're on the topic of Facebook, I just want to jump in with a question because, um, you know, there's some new features that are coming through pri- like privacy-wise for, for Facebook mm. now that, you know, some people have said they're going to change the game, you know, like where you can actually wipe out, you know, the, the data on your pixel and you can't track someone anymore mm. and all this, you know, like doom and gloom and, you know, the world's going to catch on fire and all that sort of stuff. So I was just wondering your take on that, like, yeah, I think the world never really catches on fire. Like, I think you you see a couple of trends in the performance space, which are like generally heading in the same direction and like have to be responded to in more or less the same way. And that's mm. uh, you see the increasing usage of machine learning to control targeting, um, which means that there is this like trust in Zuck mentality where you've got to like trust in the algorithms to get you the best audiences. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like that makes it easier. So like the the dark arts of like bid manipulation and audience targeting, they're becoming less powerful. And I think the moves to privacy probably increases the speed at which that happens. Mm. And then at the same time, uh, the bar for creative and the effectiveness of that creative probably continues to increase. So the less control you have as a buyer, the more power you have as a creative. And you seem like, like, I like to think of advertising and moving in a couple of phases, like the first being like the big agency mentality where you've got like, some like Don Draper like figure making big stories that run in big channels and making big brands. And then you have like the dawn of the performance era where like for 20 years you could be a ruthless analytical marketer and succeed. Mm. Um, And that's from the first days of search all the way through to now. Mm. I think the pendulum is swinging back in the 
um, into the control of creatives a little bit, and it's mm. about how you can produce creative that works in performance channels. Hundred percent agree. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, I, I think I think um, on the creative point. Um, one of the more frustrating thing is um, companies don't invest in creative enough. So yeah, it's they, they they come. It's, it's weird, right? Especially with e-commerce stores that like visuals is the seller. Yeah, I f- what I find odd about the whole thing is that like people view CPAs in the context of a media specific realm. Like, mm. so you let you, you often see like, oh, woe is me, my CPA is X, it's going up, and it's like, well, how do you think about creative? Is it like my view? Your CPA is your cost of media plus your cost of creative plus your cost of team, mm-hmm. um, and therefore your job as a head of marketing or as a founder or whatever is to. Uh, allocate resource as best you can across those three elements. And so um, there are constant questions you're asking, which are like freelancer versus in-house. And that runs into that calculation. There is like produce big, high quality creative piece or several small creative pieces. Same part of that same equation. Mm. And then allocation of media across channel is the same part. But the amount of times you see a media specific view of CPA and then a a, like a doomsday scenario based on that is like it's it's incredibly common and incredibly stupid mm. how I, i'm sure that like some companies have you know spoken to you a lot about you know especially in this area of cpa and how to like you know attribution is a big topic of course we'll get into that a little later but have what was your conversations like with some of the i guess founders in terms of helping them understand that like hey you know like it's a holistic view rather than a single channel view yeah it's a, it's a tough thing right because i think a lot of companies they tend to build like one muscle really strongly first and so mm. i mean like some of the great company stories out of australia in terms of growth are like single channel success stories and originally right so you yeah. look at you look at canva with its seo and its content strategy um and the brilliant nature of that um you look at who are some other good examples i mean like Alassian, Alassian yeah. have their own, but it's not really what is it they it's more of a product-led yeah that's I a know. product-led strategy yeah, so yeah. it's like i mean and that's it's a, it's a product of its time as well uh, i think like I mean, I mean, a lot of ways, Koala early on probably was a Facebook-dependent company. Um, yeah. And so when you've got a single-channel-dependent story for growth um, and then the limitations on that channel start to present themselves, it's very hard to then go, oh, shit, now I've got to uh, diversify my portfolio yeah. and probably mm. take some risks, right? Because, mm-hmm. like, if you're really strong on one thing, everything else is going to be in its, in, in its infancy, right? So you're going to have to deal with the fact that you're going to become less efficient for a little while to learn to a point where you've become you become cross-channel uh, capable. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, the hard thing about that, and I think the way that it needs to kind of be approached from companies looking at it early on is like, can we have a t- 20% of our budget or 20% of our resource that goes into like testing new channels that mm-hmm. might not yet be ready for like prime time in terms of a part of a mature mix, but certainly are worth looking and shopping for value in because you don't know when your main channels are going to start to deteriorate. Yeah. We're going to talk about like emerging channels in a second because mm. there's, there's a few that I think is super, super interesting. Um, and I think before we get to that, one of the questions I had was, so with the deterioration of a single channel, was there an obvious point that was like, okay, so, you know, Facebook wasn't as good as before. Maybe it's time to kind of go into search. Um, or was <laughs> it like you already knew that you want to invest in other channels? I think like you get this mentality uh, pretty core, cool, which is like, where is the next cheapest customer? And so you're constantly going like, okay, yes, we continue to get new customers in through this channel, but they seem to be getting more expensive over time, Mm. as is the kind of truth of any channel. 
Uh, and so there will be obviously a point where the next cheapest channel customer is not in this channel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, that 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 truth is probably universal, right? It's probably always. So the question is then, how do you allocate resource to find the next cheapest customer, knowing that you're going to get it wrong probably most times? Yeah. Um, and so you allocate and you go, all right, um, I'm going to guess across these ten channels that there are some cheap customers somewhere. Um, as a combined effort early on, they'll probably represent a more expensive customer because yeah. they're they're viewed in aggregate, but hopefully it unlocks a deep pool somewhere that I can then tap into in the long term. Yeah. Did you fuck up in a channel where like there was one that you just thought it was yeah, going to work? It didn't yeah, work. I mean, I think like you, you want to have first principles approach to most of this stuff, right? So you want to go and go, what do I think of that channel generally? Yeah. Um, and a couple of examples where I made mistakes were like we did House, um, which is a performance, which is like a display channel within an interior designer network. Mm. Um, Reasonably high cost of allocation, reasonably high cost of entry, so willing to take a reasonably big test. Um, and like the the while logically it makes sense for a mattress brand to be in that environment, I don't think visually we were quite there. Um, the pr- channel probably wasn't as deep as we thought it was. Um, the behavior wasn't what we look we thought it looked like in terms of click out and then also transaction. And so we ended up completely wasting the money. Um, mm. I've also made mistakes from an editorial perspective in that sense where. Um, Native content, something that's been very powerful for Koala historically, or for, I mean, for most brands. Um, and so we went to BuzzFeed expecting like a higher level of uh, advertorial kind of content, and we ended up getting um, like a disgracefully bad piece of content. You can look it up now, BuzzFeed Koala, you'll see it. Yeah. Um, just not relevant to the brand, too much editorial control on their side, mm. uh, and as a result, no transactional behavior, mm. and very expensive. Mm. Was there was there a logical process in, in in terms of like assessing these emerging channels? Because it seems like these are not your I guess usual mix. No, like, no, no. Um, I mean, Buzzfeed could be depending on the product. Um, yeah. House was a little. I I mean, I only recently got to know House because I walked past the office. <laughs> so, mm, so we're like, yeah, what yeah. the hell is that? And yeah. and turns out to be. Yeah. Global company. Well, yeah. I think when you, I don't know, from from my point of view, like when I was working, especially at Airtask, and we were trying new channels, it was almost like, you know, what makes sense? Go and talk to the reps, you know, try and make a logical decision there. And sometimes you don't know until you've actually spent the money, and that's the frustration. Absolutely. Thing. I mean, like every, like you wouldn't be a rep if you couldn't oversell your channel. Mm, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I think like that's fundamentally true. Like there are some really attractive channels from outside in. Mm. Um, Rocked being one, for example. Like, oh, we tried them. Logically, it holds up, right? Logically, yeah. like, okay this is a reasonably cheap way to acquire emails. Once we've got an email, we're pretty good at doing X, Y, and Z with emails, you know, forming the basis of audiences, blah, 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 blah. Um, And then you do it and you go, oh, actually the key variable here is the emails are really shit quality. Yeah. Um, So while they're cheap, people don't open the first one. Mm. And so you get an extreme, extraordinarily low first email open rate and and suddenly you've got a very expensive engaged email user. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I think like there is definitely an element of like, First principles it out, negotiate it, give it a test, and then don't get too pissed off with it when it doesn't work because hopefully you've got a lesson that's further furthering you on to something better. Yeah, mm. I always think that you need to have that budget there to um, almost like an investment thing, like where you want to just like invest in the learning on, yeah. on that thing. You just have to be prepared that that's going to disappear into a black hole. What you need to be able to do off the back of like that is be able to be pretty ruthless with assessing yourself. I think mm. it's very easy to get in a situation where you're like, oh, like I can make a justification for this thing working. And in reality, like, and that's chasing, you know, good money after bad. I think, like, you've got to be pretty ruthless at going, like, this didn't work, kill it. Yeah. Um, in situations where you think you've executed it well. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, it's very easy to go, like, oh, you know, we have all of these underperforming channels that take up a little bit of money because we like the rep. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you're 
you know, you're, you're spending 30 grand a month on ad roll or something stupid <laughs> like that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have a mental model when it comes to killing like channels or did you, did you already have a threshold where you're like, oh, 20 G's, if it didn't work, like we, we walk away. Uh, I think like my mental models tend to be to take a very like cross metric view of things so like i go like okay what are all the things we know about this channel in terms of how it's performed and like there's like a very transactional view which should be like are we getting the uplift we were expecting to see did we design a test environment that should show that uplift and then there are like okay what are the specific elements of this channel that make it uh unique so i guess like an example being like when you're assessing radio ads if you take a very transactional view of um their results you probably don't run very many more radio ads um but if you look for kind of things like brand uplift and like specific area based in increases in intent or engagement, then you start to see evidence that like over time, this channel can be really effective in finding new audiences, yeah. um, building legitimacy of the brand. And you start to go, so you're like, you're like, what am I really trying to do here? And how would I assess if those things are working? Because I think if you end up in an apples to apples comparison, like a classic example is like people who use codes in podcast advertising and then try and compare it to, uh, more performance, mid funnel and lower funnel channels, uh, you're going to end up with a situation where the podcast mm. doesn't ever look very good. Mm. Yeah. Uh, they, I think the contextual relevance of those different channels are just different. Like, yeah. Um, Cause one of, it, it, as part of your previous interviews, you talk a lot about non attributable channels as well as attributable ones. So the attributable ones are kind of like T1, T2, which is like Facebook. What is it? Search, YouTube, Instagram. Yeah. That has pixel events. You can track them. I mean, display advertising fits into that as well. Yeah. Actually, while, because you mentioned that, let's talk about display. Mm -hmm. Um, Because one of my, well, not my worst, but, um, (laughs) but display is something that high in volume Mm. and of course, low CTR because of the nature of it. Um, How have you, how have you make that work for display? Uh, I mean, I guess I th- my answer is I probably I probably haven't. Like, mm-hmm. I think I think it suits a specific... Like, w- the logic that we used to keep our display spend relatively low at Koala was we're particularly good at storytelling. Um, yeah. Display is a low storytelling environment. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't feel like we needed to tell high-frequency, long stories from a retargeting perspective that were, like, price-based because we didn't feel like we were particularly strong in that environment anyway. Mm. Um, And so we defaulted to channels where we felt we had more creative control. Yeah. Um, I've since spent a lot of time with fintechs, and fintechs love display advertising because it's a very low-cost way to get a price-based message out in market. So Mm. um, I guess the way that I think about that channel is, is, like, is higher repetition um, important to you? And if so, then it's something that you can make work. But I've also seen brands built entirely on display, like um, what's the what? a Bellroy, who've done a fantastic job Seriously. of telling a really compelling story, combination of an incredible amount of deep thinking around attribution and uh, measurement in the display space, and then a compelling narrative that is that Slim Your Wallet, combined with a really nice landing page for Slim Your Wallet, has built probably you know what is a mid eight figure business. So like, I guess like I don't have hard and fast rules around what works and what doesn't. Mm, yeah. Um, so now that we're talking, now that come you know moving on to the non-attributable channels, um, <clears throat> radio mm. is something that you talk um, quite often about, at least from my research. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I love radio. So let's let's talk about radio because um, we definitely had an opportunity in Academy XI to actually invest in radio uh, spots. Yeah. 
um, didn't take this. I didn't take. Uh, I didn't take the opportunity, which is my fault. And um, to be honest, I found it really hard to understand how I would get a transaction from that, especially yeah. because the the item was so expensive. Yeah. Um, let's let's talk about like your your, I guess your process of evaluating where radio was a good fit. Yeah. So uh, I guess like there are three elements to any media channel. There is the cost of the audience. There is the value of that audience to your brand, yeah. and then there is like the creative that you can. Like uh, uh, we were big believers in asking the question of whether or not we could differentiate ourselves creatively in a certain channel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess like the first thing is to think about the cost of the audience, uh, uh, the cost of the spot, um, and the cost of the audience. I guess there's a derivative of that, and you go like, look, radio. There is a huge amount of inventory, all priced differently, uh, all negotiation based. So. My perception of that was if I could create a feedback loop that was reasonably fast, then I could get a pretty deep understanding of what spots worked and what didn't. Yeah. Um, I could hand that over to a team of um, very intelligent analytical people at Koala who could deep dig deeper into that and we could shop for value because our feedback loops were actually better than the radio stations mm. um, because we see what spots works and which ones don't. They do not ever see that. Yeah. Um, and so we thought we could get sharper than they could. Um, we then thought, which value? what is the value of the audience? And when you look at radio listenership in Australia, you're looking at, you know, basically a million people a week per station. Uh, in Sydney, sorry, a million people a week per station, um, which is high numbers. Wow. Um, you're looking at a engaged, slightly older audience than you get in your digital channels. So you're going, well, we've historically struggled to find that audience um, anyway. And then you're making some first principles assumptions around, well, like offline media tends to be held in higher regard from a trust perspective. So mm-hmm. um, for people that might not be rusted on um Digital shoppers hearing a mattress brand talk about talk it in a radio environment might add legitimacy. Um, hearing their morning radio hosts live read through about a mattress brand yeah. um, is probably valuable. And then you go, so you've probably got a picture of what are the spots cost? Can we get better at that? Yes. Um, does it deliver something? Is that audience valuable to the brand? Yes. Um, and then the last one was creative, and that's where we saw a real opportunity because mm. uh, radio tends to run on a set of rules from a creative perspective, and a lot of the situations the radio station actually makes the ads for the company. Mm. Um, and in that case, they're doing something very formulaic, which is going, okay, um, what rules do we play by in this environment? And that's cram a lot of information in, uh, put, a, put a backing track under it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly you've got an ad break where all the ads are exactly the same. And so yeah. we thought... Well, if we were to do things a little bit differently, apply some of our digital principles in a new environment, mm. maybe we can create ads that really stand out. And so, um, as you guys probably know, Creative Koala has a very strong creative team, mm. um, and so they were able to bring insight into that environment that was different. The ads were very slow, very purposeful, had a really strong non-conventional hook, uh, and we saw great results. So, um, yeah. so yeah, I think like I guess like to wrap that into a story that is like applicable in terms of approaching non-attributable channels, it's like, do your value shopping, be willing to make leaps of kind of a little bit of faith, set up measurement infrastructure that works. So we would do on-off market testing, Sydney v. Melbourne, Sydney v. Brisbane. Mm. Um, and then finally, like, utilize what muscles you have to bring to that environment, in our case, being creative and storytelling. Mm. Cool. Um, actually, while we're on this subject, because, I mean, Spotify is like the new, you know, mm. kind of like radio, like for, for, I guess, you know, the, the next generation. Yeah. Um, have you done much... Yeah, I have. I like, 
I think it's a bit shit. Um, <laughs> and the reason that I think that is because I don't think it's a real priority for Spotify. Mm. I think like when you, there's two environments that look very similar. One is Tinder and one is Spotify. Yep. And the reason that I think they're both the same is because the majority of their revenue comes through sub- subscriptions. Mm-hmm. And so in an environment where most of your revenue comes through subscriptions, then your willingness to bend at any way for advertisers or build things for advertisers deteriorates. So it's like tacked on. Yeah, it's tacked on. And so uh, you've got a, let's call it a lower, a more price sensitive customer by the nature of they're not paying for the subscription. Mm. Um, You've got ad inventory that is very lazily uh, set up. Mm. And then you've got a measurement infrastructure that's very difficult because it's all happening in app. And so those three things combined, like to me, it looks like a prettier channel than it's going to be for quite a while. And there are better digital... There's better digital inventory than that, mm. in my view, mm. until they get serious about it. And then one day, maybe, you know, something that, you know, like maybe, maybe the subscription revenue starts to tap and then they go, well, maybe advertising becomes our thing. Mm. Um, and when that happens, like, sure, I'll be back there. Cool. Makes sense. Yeah. I have to say, like, we tried, we tried some Spotify things. Um, it, it wasn't the best, like, mm. to say the least. It's one of the mess around, but I think was, um, a, was like just really low spend and then just try and see mm. what came out of it. Yeah. Similar things, I think. Like, I think it would also depend on product. Like, if we're, say, pushing something on Spotify, like, say, this podcast, for instance, maybe that might make sense. But yeah. if it's a, like, we're trying to get a sale out of something, mm. it's a bit harder, you know, so. Yeah, it has a lot of the uh, weaknesses of radio without mm. probably a lot of the strengths. Mm. Um, it's just not very measurable. It's not, like... You don't get very good time signatures out of where it runs. Like none of the things that you really want, does it deliver very well? And so mm. I, I, we've been by, like we've been historically been strong buyers across, you know, I also think the ad platform is pretty shit. Mm. Like my general view is that if you're a digital, if you, if you're managing largely digital inventory, if you're not setting up something pretty strong self-serve, um, then you're not doing your job properly as a platform. Yeah. Um, and I think that's true of, Snapchat's history, I think up until quite recently, its DR platform wasn't very good. LinkedIn um, was pretty bad. When LinkedIn's been yeah. awful but for most of the time. I have to say, they've, they've gone better. They're, yeah, yeah, yeah. You better. can look at the investments that are being made in self-serve ad platforms. I mean, Pinterest, huge investment being made at the moment. Mm. Oh. Very mm. successfully um, in the replicate the Facebook ads manager model. Reddit, I have yeah, that's got a range Reddit. of yeah. Um, they've yeah, it's doing. They're doing a lot of work on it. You can mm. tell that, that people are seeing this value, but in those subscription-heavy businesses, maybe it's not there yet. Yeah. yeah. Um, now that we're in the topic of emerging channels, we might as well talk about it because um, some of the emerging channels that we've been thinking or spending a lot of energy thinking about and investigating. Of course, the top three that we can immediately think of is Pinterest, Quora, and Reddit. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to got TikTok in there now too, which is a new... Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about TikTok in, um, a little bit after that because TikTok mm-hmm. is probably a little bit more on the non-attributable side. Um, mm-hmm. There's not a lot of feedback loop in that. Whereas for Pinterest, Reddit, and Quora, there is a mm-hmm. proper feedback loop mm-hmm. and the ad platform is pretty... I have to say it's pretty, it's pretty good. Um, even though it's still relatively new. What's your experience when it comes to buying and merging? So I understand Koala's already doing Pinterest stuff. Uh, um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've done a fair bit. We, we, we're always looking at new channels, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's like, I think the first thing is like, you've got to, again, be like applying the same principles you do any channel, which is like, what are we expecting this to do for us? Go in with like eyes up around what the test should look like. I think a lot of the temptation always is to go like, Here's what, here's what we expect out of Facebook. So, like, here's what a ROAS looks like. Here's what performance should look like. Here's what the audiences should look like. Here's what the CPMs, blah, 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 blah. 
I think it's dangerous because I think like you comparing a mature channel to something immature and you're quick to discard the immature. And so I think like what we've always historically done is be like, what new things can this channel provide for us? How can Mm -hmm. we use it in a novel way? Um, Let's test those assumptions. Then like, let's build in some assumed kind of weakness from our ability to learn. So like we know that the channel will get better. Mm -hmm. And then we take a look and go like, what I don't like is when there are fundamental issues with the channel like when you go to snapchat and they're like well we don't really have a self-serve ad platform of any real note yet a year ago Mm -hmm. and so like to me it's like that's not worth the investment then um because there's fundamental things that'll stop it scaling for us yeah but if you believe that at scale it could be effective i think it's worth going at least a little bit of the way on the journey to get there yeah Mm. so if we ask what is tim's like checklist when it comes to um, investigating emerging channels other than self-serving capabilities yeah what's your you know do you have a can role? I create a measurement infrastructure that I think will provide us with some outcomes that we believe in so like whether that's just purely the ability to set up geo fences of some description yeah obviously the deeper you can go with a pixel the better but um I, I recognize that that's not always possible mm. um do I believe we can create a storytelling advantage here? Is there a novel way to use this? Inv- so like if your inventory is purely a header banner on your website or whatever, <laughs> mm. and it's just like a classic display play, I just like, I find it hard to believe that there'll be any value there because mm-hmm. if the value was there, everyone would have extracted it already because it's very simple to be best in class effectiveness in that space. Yeah. Well, now that we mentioned, uh, before we mentioned TikTok, let's might as well talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's emerging. They bought Musically like a while ago. I don't remember. They yeah, two years ago, by, I think. They're owned by a Chinese company. Yeah, uh, I believe. And we're being we're being spending some energy looking into it. Um, it's one of the harder ones to understand because the engagement is fantastic. Like yeah. organic wise, like. Awesome. What does that actually mean? Though, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but the mm-hmm. feedback loop, um, in terms of you know bringing them to the website is challenging mm-hmm. to say the least because um, there's no way to actually bring them back other than bringing them to an Instagram profile and then there's a link yeah it's like a two step or three um, step thing have you, have yeah. you dug into it much? Uh, yeah I mean I th- we, like it's silly not to see like if you don't if you're looking at emerging content platforms and not at least kind of playing around then I think you're setting yourself up to, I like I I had this like kind of crisis of age last year when <laughs> when VidCon was on yeah um <laughs> Because I was like, oh, God, I'm, I don't want to go anywhere near that. Like, I think, like, that that's a world different to the world I understand. Yeah. And then I, I, like, I, like, reflected on that and I was like, that's actually extremely dumb because, like, that's how you end up in a situation where a lot of CMOs are now with, like, having completely missed digital inventory, basically, and, mm-hmm. and, and an understanding of that. So I think, like, you've got to make the effort to kind of make yourself a little bit uncomfortable with the, like, channels you don't quite understand in order to get up to date on them. And I think yeah. TikTok's a good one. I think um, my view of it in where it's at now is, like, it should be eyeballs and eyeballs only in terms of what you think you're going to get out of it. I think mm. like the two-step movement process is just not something that works functionally. So I wouldn't bank on... I, I think this... It, it feels very similar to when Facebook pre-Pixel days were like, the number one ad product you can buy is likes. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and so... <laughs> and so like you can get half a million likes if you spend a million dollars on promoted posts. And it's mm. just like the... The per- like you you could have got burned there and gone never gone back to Facebook and so that would have been dumb but I think like yeah. if you'd spend small amounts of money to link- learn incrementally what creative really does work on the platform and how the platform works then over time what you do is become a leader on that platform and then when you're a leader on that platform and that platform becomes a performance platform mm. you're in the best place to succeed yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, actually while we're on this topic as well um, 
how important do you think it is now to focus on brand over product as well with these like you know if you're looking at something like TikTok which is probably more awareness and you know, mm. chance to, to get eyeballs yeah do, do you see there's more of a shift I think that, like, it's like a really stupid and dangerous dichotomy to draw brand and performance as two different things mm-hmm. like what we're seeing is the blending of environments right so like what you'd typically look at as performance inventory which is inventory um very close to transaction i mean has been derived from search forever is becoming more and more creatively competitive Mm. um i don't think we've seen an environment anything like now when it comes to how you write search ads and how you try to win Mm -hmm. eyeballs in those environments um you know with landing page experience becoming more and more important to that channel as well you're becoming a creative challenge there so it's like the days when you're like oh the brand guys sit over here and the performance guys sit over here completely redundant i think like what you need to be thinking about is a all eyeballs are going to have an attached cost to them and everyone in the team has to understand that. Mm. B, feedback loops are better than they've ever been. So uh, you need to be able to run creative through a machine which gives you feedback and then that feedback has to go to the creative team, whether that's... And then that means that you can shape your brand over time through those feedback loops. Mm. And then the third thing is on that, I think like people, particularly performance performance marketers, have to really respect the fact that you've got a full funnel environment where... um, awareness is of a, a measurable attributable and real thing yeah. and so like take performance approaches to buying up the funnel and make those performance buyers a little bit uncomfortable but teach them and then bring creative into a measurable world and i think both of those things have to happen for you to be successful Across as a full funnel brand yeah. Yeah. um yeah. the best teams for me the best teams are when designers kind of are hooked on the adrenaline rush of the feedback loops of seeing which creatives <laughs> do well yeah. for them yeah, yeah, yeah. um the best things are when performance buyers can go to a radio schedule and go, those three spots are priced differently. They should actually be priced like this. Mm. And then when you have that cross, like there's a great book called Range. I'm not sure who it's by. I can't remember. I'm actually reading it at the moment. But, um, and it talks about like the value of a generalist education. And I definitely think like generalist teams in marketing uh, are becoming more and more important and the separation becoming more and more dangerous. 100% yeah. agree. 100%. Yeah. Well, we'll get into the generalist culture in, mm. in just a little bit because... Um, uh, as part of your previous interviews, you did talk a lot about, you know, developing a decentralized creative agencies in-house and got rid of some of the external ones. But before we talk about that, um, I, I had a question around, like, um, I understand the, the, the importance of having brand and performance together, never separate them. Mm. But I think there's a massive culture shift for um, brand managers, if you will, or brand people. Have, have you found that, have you found there to be a, a big, a culture shift and if so like did you train them to to think a different way because yeah. they're not they're not used to they're not used to yeah. thinking about like yeah, it's a very different mindset oh, like let, let me buy yeah. some ATL media and yeah. then like oh, yeah I think a brand the, the brand manager role will be extinct relatively soon mm. I think it's a project manager type responsibility that doesn't really make sense mm. um, I think like what will happen is the, that role will be replaced by like a resource allocation type role across a brand where the fundamentals are you have time, you have money, and you have an intended audience and some goals. Um, you have a whole lot of channels in which you can operate there. Yeah. Um, your responsibility is to allocate money between those channels. Um, the outcomes which you need are full funnel. So you need transactions. You need a certain size consideration audience. You need a certain brand awareness. Yeah. Um, and you're constantly managing resources both in and out in order to make sure that you achieve those goals and so basically there's two people that i think are going away uh the performance manager who is incapable of 
understanding and wanting to involve themselves in the full funnel metrics. And then the brand manager that says, oh no, um, my job is to build the brand and that's some fluffy soft idea. In a fully measurable world, those jobs become one. Mm. Yeah, um, I think I think my, certainly I, I can't speak for Andrew, but my respect for, I guess the, the brand and the creative has certainly evolved over the years. Um, yeah. Because of my, you know, because of the importance of creative. But I think I found in, in, in the beginning, I found it really hard to uh, empathize with um, brand teams, if you will. Yeah, it's it's a sexy thing to come out, come in as a, you know, as a marketer and go like, oh, I can't believe people are investing in like, you know, I, I, I think like there's a classic example. I think someone said it to me once where it was like, oh, like how do you measure the click through of a billboard? And like, that's just intellectually lazy, mm. but it was easy to say, right? Because it was easy to be like, look at me with all my new channels. I've got search and I've got Facebook and I've got display and I've got all these things and I can measure all of them. Mm. And like, A, you're lying because you can't. Um, <laughs> and then B, like if that's the narrowness of your world, then you don't really understand marketing. Yeah, yeah. And so I think like, just as it was novel for a time to be like, oh, performance marketers don't understand storytelling. Mm. And to the other side of that to go, oh, you you brand marketers don't understand channel mix. If you're yeah. either one of those camps, then like yeah, you're setting yourself yeah. up for failure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Um, well, actually, can we move on to attribution, I think? Because it's okay. kind of a yeah. good segue, I think, a little bit. Because um, I know in the last interview, in one of the other interviews we were, uh, we were watching, you, you said, um, and, and I kind of agree as well, that, you know, Facebook, Google, they all are trying to attribute because they're trying to make themselves look better in the eyes of the advertiser. Yeah. Um, you know, in your view, how have you kind of got around that? Because, um, you know, there, there were tools when I was in, in the Airtask, we used to use something called Interstate, which unfortunately disappeared, um, which, which was really good at kind of telling the truth in terms of what was performing and what wasn't. Mm. Um, but yeah, was there anything that you kind of... Yeah, I'm, I like I've been thinking about this a lot I've always thought about this quite a lot, but I think like you start from one overarching principle, which is like Google and Facebook primarily will lie to you for different reasons. Yeah. Um, and so you have to have an understanding that that's a, you have to get to that truth. And that truth comes out of the fact that Google will attribute things in a last click sense in order to favor search. Mm. Facebook will, as the primary video advertising platform, will obviously prefer a view because people don't like to clip out of it, click out of in-app activity. Mm. Suddenly, you've got two different views of the world. Would so you once say, you Would you say the same for analytics as well? Because like, Google Analytics does own that, that product. Oh, yeah. GA is a, a product built to serve search. Yeah. Right? Um, Facebook's building its own analytics. Like, its analytics platform has come along so far primarily to try and fight that dominance, mm. I would imagine. Um, and so you start with those two, li- you, those two like fundamental platforms lying in their own way. Like, Facebook... Sh- bafflingly incredible lies to pretend that no other channel but Facebook exists. You know, like yeah. like for people to go into that channel and go like, oh yeah, here is a last touch version of the world yeah. when like you have no respect for any other channel is, is remarkable. Yeah. Um, and so I guess like you start from that point. So I think then from there you go, okay, what I need to be able to do really well is I need to be able to understand at a deep level what is going on in a channel specific environment uh, relative to the performance of that channel only. Yeah. So fundamental question you're asking there is can i get better at facebook can i get better at search can i get better at display um in their specific environments mm. which i think most people in the performance marketing world do quite well yep. uh, and probably a lot i mean almost in all cases better than i do um the second environment that i think is really important which is a more difficult question is can i monitor the health of my overall engine and to me that's a question of um can i move channel money between channel creative and team 
in a way that improves the overall health of what I do. Okay. Um, and to me, what you need to be able to do to get there is um, a pretty rigorous testing framework for the overall effectiveness of certain channels, mm. which tends to be the on-off market type stuff. Mm. Um, and then a view of like, can I pour all of my dollars into a tracking template of your own choosing um, and get spit out a reflection of how healthy the engine is over time? And I think what you need to do there is you have some high funnel metrics reflected on there. Different businesses do different things, but in an e-commerce environment, add to cart is really healthy. Mm. Um, and then the transactional measure as well. So, and then you're going, okay, I will move money between uh, the top and the bottom of a funnel in order to make sure those metrics are as healthy as they can be over time. So yeah. if you believe that add to carts will eventually throw the flow to the transactions, then you spend money top of funnel to build your add to carts, then shift money in the lower funnel to close them into transactions. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of phase two is to be able to have that like macro view of whether or not things are working at a, like, at a whole level. And then I think the third view, which another kind of generation of marketers have probably missed and, and particularly the younger ones is like does my view of my marketing engine align with the PL view of the business and i think mm -hmm. that's where a lot of like i hear a lot of kind of the dominant voices in australian marketing um reflect this view where like a budget is given to them and then their job is to allocate that budget down into the business and i think like mm -hmm. that's because marketers have historically been locked out of a PL conversation right. um one of the great credits to Danny and Mitch at Koala were that they were able to have a P&L level conversation where marketing was at the core. Nice. Um, and so we were able to work out like uh, the, an example being, say you launch a new product like a sofa, that right. is a big strategic leap for the business. Mm. To make that happen, you need to change people's perception of the brand. Mm. If you're wanting to change people's perception of the brand, you have to spend in some inefficient channels that aren't going to drive transactions immediately. Mm -hmm. So you might need to reshape the percentage of revenue that goes into your marketing budget for a quarter in order to shift perception, in order to bring back efficiency in the long term. Uh, I would imagine that conversation doesn't happen very often um, in a room with a marketing person, a two founders and a CFO. But yeah. that was a constantly evolving conversation in an environment like Koala. Um, and that led to phase two being easier because I could then allocate into a machine that I knew yeah. was working. Yeah. And then phase three, uh, where you've got channel-specific views of the world, that becomes simpler as well because everyone understands what's happening all the way up the chain. Yeah. So accountability-wise, it's, it's, it's much better as well. Yeah, yeah. Because you're more accountable for what's going on. Uh, what I what I find a, a remarkable thing that happens in terms of accountability is yeah. like a month where people underspend to budget um, being viewed as a good month. It's like, that's a terrible month. Mm. You've missed revenue. Like, oh, we, we had a cheaper CPA than we thought and we also wanted to spend a budget. And it's like, well, unfortunately, that's incredibly dumb because you've missed like a hot period for your brand yeah. where you could have probably capitalized to a greater level. Mm -hmm. So like mm -hmm. a successful month is where you're, you hit your CPA goals and exceed your revenue goals. Mm. And then you continue to spend up, even if it's a million dollars over what you originally allocated because you're hitting your CPA goals. Yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine that um, for a marketing-led company, you know, it, it's easier to include the marketer into the P&L conversations. Um, have you ever encountered, like, cause some of our listeners is probably coming from a SaaS or a product-led company, like, have you encountered like those conversations where like when the business is a little bit more product led, how do you, you know, how do you not lock out marketers for a PL conversation? Cause all, you know, they talk about, well, that's a very generalist view, but um, you know, it's, it's, I think the environment is slightly different. Right? Uh, yeah, I think, yeah. So I like, I mean, let's look at like the great SaaS businesses of this country and look at, you know, the Atlassians and Canvas of the world. I think like 
the way that you involve product and marketing in the same conversation is like when we're releasing or when we're bringing new things out or when we're trying to achieve things with a product, what will it actually mean for marketing to facilitate that success? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like you have a PL view of that conversation, right? So say you're list your say your I don't know, you're Atlassian and you're launching a new product and you have a view to reaching a new market to do that um, in terms of a new type of customer. Mm. Um, marketing obviously has a very crucial role to play in that. And so the way that you look at success for that product wouldn't necessarily align with the way that you historically look for success for products because they work in a different way. So being able to go, well, we're actually going to reach a mass market with this product and someone outside of the develop- developer community yeah. um, will need to spend differently and the marketer should bring your perspective on how that spend should not only be shaped, but how it should evolve over time in order to deliver what you want to do. So having a product marketing and kind of CEO level discussion in the same piece is probably what's valuable there. Mm. Good point, good yeah. point. Um, cool, so that was attribution and we've, that, those were probably like burning questions to ask you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Facebook before we move on to email marketing because um, some of the newer features, not just privacy, but they're removing the asset budgets where you can manipulate the budgets back in the days and do some dark shit. Yeah. Um, now it's all about CBOs and I understand that some businesses have been using Smartly, which mm-hmm. is giving the algorithm to someone someone smarter yeah. and not giving to Zucks. Um, what's your take on, you know, the future of, you know, media buying for Facebook, especially with the whole, they're essentially automating most things. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, they want, they want you to say, give us budget, um, and creative and we'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, like, I get it. I think, like, you probably... So, like, with all Facebook things, you need a healthy sense of skepticism. Like, blind faith in Facebook has never paid. Mm. Um, you would have been buying likes. You know, you would have been buying... Like, even when the Stories products came out, they were, like, incredibly ill-equipped to know what worked from a creative perspective mm. um, in those channels. So I think, like, my view of new things out of Facebook has always been the same is that there will be value to being the first to being good at them. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there will be a lot of noise that's wrong about how to get good at them. So you'll need to react, test and react faster than anyone else does in order to extract value from new tactics and new things, Mm -hmm. whether that properly reflects the broad trend of like increasing control to them. I think like these things are unavoidable. Uh, and in a world where they're unavoidable, then, you kind of have to adapt to them as they happen. Um, and if they're really macro things, then um, yeah, you're gonna have to have trust in them at, at some level and then get good at what they do. Okay, so now that we spoke about CBOs, um, I think it's fair, that, you know, it'd be good to kind of move towards email marketing because it's something that you mentioned in some of the previous interviews too, because you guys have, especially in Koala, you guys had a pretty tight review flywheel. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that, I mean, if you are in e-commerce, I don't know if people are doing it, mm. but some companies aren't. What's your what's your view on the future of email mar- for email marketing? Just because um, you know, I I swear I remember past couple of years people keep saying that like email marketing is dead, and then we're like, if you're saying it's dead, I wish you would scream louder because that gives me more of a chance mm. to own that space. What's your view on email marketing for you know for e-commerce businesses and even now for Pilot? Yeah, I think like it's fundamental infrastructure. Like I don't necessarily think you grow your brand. Um, in email as a channel, but I'm I'm amazed by how much neglect there is of um, it as a fundamental part of a successful funnel infrastructure. Yeah, I think yeah. like, I mean, I was lucky enough to come into Koala when uh, Danny and Mitch had already set up like fundamentally fantastic capture flows, um, yeah. all of those type of things to make it work. And so therefore, like I looked at them and I, I felt like they had a multiplicative effect on anything we did um, higher up in the funnel because Koala was very good at capturing very good at introducing a welcome flow that was 
personal, high quality, very good creative, um, having all of the necessary, you know, cart retargeting and checkout abandonment type flows, mm. a lot of cross-sell stuff, a lot of upsell stuff. And so, and then the review funnel itself obviously created what we talk about with that review flywheel is the better you are at getting reviews, the more you find out about your customers. Mm-hmm. Um, those reviews can then be classified into different topics. They can then feed product innovation. They can feed customer service. Yeah. Um, but then they can also feed advertising in the sense that the more reviews you have coming in, the more optionality you have to use those reviews in advertising. The better your advertising becomes, the more reviews flow through. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, Koala is famous for its, you know, 20,000 plus five-star reviews now. Um, and one of the things that's most powerful about them is that social proof at a macro level and then 20,000 different options at a micro level um, to provide targeted content to customers at a very cheap, 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 cheap production of creative. Yeah. Um, on email marketing, the other controversial view, uh, probably not controversial, but um, people have this um, mentality that it's, you know, the bigger database, the better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's dumb, right? Yeah. I think the reason that it's dumb is because you, like a dormant person on your email list has no real value. Um, so I think like, emailing enough that you're providing value to the customers that actually care and then willingness to let the ones that don't churn mm. um, is probably the right mindset because a vanity metric like size of email list doesn't help anybody. Plus, it probably ups your, you know, burn. I don't know, not by much, but like it still it still adds up over time. Yeah, and your sendability, your deliverability metrics get damaged yeah. as well. Mm. 100%. So in email marketing, I... Um, Obviously, we've been doing a lot of research on you and we talked, I think in some of the other materials, you talked a lot about, you know, um, Koala had a 35-day buying cycle and there's a CPA target. Have you found emails to kind of like help you accelerate towards some of the CPA targets? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think like, I think you've just got to be cognizant of the fact that like, you've got several opportunities within that flow uh, to convert people. And then you've got to be able to like evolve what you're sending from a messaging perspective over the course of that time. Um, and and kind of create a create a moment of action. So like, we there's very deliberate emails that go out in the first few days to try and get people to convert. And I definitely think that helps accelerate the speed at which people do. Mm. Um, things like providing social proof relatively early in the piece increase the speed of transactions. And then also there's like how you run discount messages at a macro level over time. So like using emails to run sales, yeah. um, where they're like bigger discount offers, uh, is a classic way to empty the funnel yeah. and kind of clear out people that are thinking about buying, but I'm probably waiting for a discount or probably, you know, on the edge. Yeah. Let's let's briefly talk about discounts because it's one of the common conversations that Andrew and I have where when you discount too often, you train them to behave in a certain way. Yeah. Wait for it. Oh, it's definitely a balance. Um, yeah. How have you battled that? I mean, it's a constant one because like, uh, like sale periods are like crack. Like it's like every, you know, you get like a massive uplift in your number, in your revenue and it looks really good. Uh, I think there's a couple of things you need to worry about. There is like discounts as a percentage of revenue um, where you're going like, okay, how is the fact that we're... Like one of the funny things about discounts is like it always makes your CPA healthier, right? So you're like... <laughs> yeah. So like discounts are probably something that should be a marketing responsibility. And then like you should probably be taking... as a Marketing as a percentage of total revenue, you should probably be having a like cost of running marketing plus discounting view of the world where mm-hmm. um, if they're... If your marketers are fucking around with the amount of discounting they're doing, that should reflect negatively on the overall cost of marketing. Right, right. Um, and if you can't, you need to create an ecosystem where that works. Like I think one of the classic ones is to have influencer codes out in the landscape, right? Mm-hmm. Where you, you know, like companies like Honey and affiliate networks like that are able to kind of find the cheapest version of your product. And people are good at pretty, pretty good at finding the cheapest version of your product on the internet. So if you've got one rogue influencer code out in the market where it's 20% cheaper than anything else you have, then yeah. that's going to damage you. Um, and so 
discounts plus uh, marketing as a way to view the cost of total marketing is probably necessary. And then also the periods which you're on and off sale for, I think it's like you've got to be managing. I think if you get in a situation where you're seeing like 300% uplift during your sale periods, yeah. um, then you've probably running sale periods too often because you need to be able to have a view of CAC, which is real in this context of non-sales and not just like hugely inflated mm. knowing that it's going to come down massively when you run a sale mm. yeah yeah um andrew had to go through this and um i think it's been really interesting to see companies that discount too often where the search vo- the search terms becomes um blah blah blah, blah discount codes and it kind of just hurts you because they're not buying when there's no disc when there's yeah, no yeah yeah they become like almost high volume for your brand like well yeah it's definitely like, like search terms that you can see that they're you know people been entering in yeah. over a month or a couple of months yeah. Yeah, yeah I think we've been through times when we've just been on mass calls of discount codes to a note to stop that happening mm. yeah uh, and certainly gone longer than you know a few months at a time without a sale in order to yeah. restructure the way that people interact with the brand mm. I always think you need to put um, like time limits on, on your discounts as well like some people just kind of leave them out there and you know, yeah, 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 yeah. more responsible about how long you actually you know leave them out there for and, and let them know that it's only going to be for 10 days 20 days whatever it might be yeah exactly yeah. exactly